One of the biggest differences between Christianity and the religions of the world that are all out there is what they claim about what you add to your salvation. The religions of the world say that you have something to add to your salvation, right? There's something good in us, some form of something, even if it's one drop in the ocean, you know, that's a little bit. <laughs> they say, sometimes what they'll tell you is as long as you're doing your best, right? As long as you're doing your best, as long as you're putting your best effort in there, that's all that matters, right? There's something good that each one of us can add to our salvation. There's something good each one of us can bring to our salvation. Kind of like someone trying to teach me to play the piano. I am not good at instruments. I am pretty horrific. I am awful. But you know, a minor miracle could happen. If someone came and spent a lot of time trying to teach me piano, it is possible, after months and months, maybe years, that something could come out of that that sounds something like a song. It's possible. But Christianity is not like that. Christianity, on the other hand, says we have nothing to add to our salvation. And I want to emphasize the nothing there. We are rebels. We are dead in our sins. We are servants of Satan. And that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. There is nothing in us, not even a drop of the ocean, that we can add to our salvation. You see, God does not cooperate with us. And the reason is because there's nothing he has to cooperate with. <laughs> there's nothing to cooperate with. The only thing we can add is the need to be saved. Our sin. So if salvation is to happen, it must be all of God. So salvation is more like trying to teach my dead corpse to play a piano piece, right? Wouldn't you say that's more accurate? And I know it sounds ridiculous, but it would take a miracle to do that. But even that doesn't go far enough. We are dead in pursuing God like corpses, but actively rebels in our stance against God. So it is even worse than that. In this passage, Judah is at the center stage to show us how salvation belongs to the Lord. I want us to see in this passage, from beginning to end, it's the unfolding of salvation. We can see a great picture of how God saves. And what better place to spend our time in than looking at our great Savior and the salvation that he brings. And so we see the unfolding of salvation from beginning to end here. And so that we will respond with praise to our God or running to him and saying, God, save me, which is praise to God, isn't it? And I want to remind you that the clearest example of this, perhaps in the New Testament, is Saul, right, who became Paul. Remember, he was on the road to Damascus. He was determined to kill, to murder. He was going to stop the church. 
He had no intention of following God. He was the opposite. He was a rebel. Dead to God. Rebellion against God. And God turned him around, didn't he? God performed a miracle and saved him and brought him in a different direction. He became the greatest missionary of all time. So first, what we see in this passage is that God works to save us through overcoming our pride by humbling us to the dust. We see that in verses 1 through 4. And we begin with a word that makes us anticipate judgment. Do you see that at the very beginning here? It might be translated woe or ah. (laughs) And there's a series, I, I said last week, that this whole section that we're looking at, chapters 28 through 35, is marked off by a series of five woes. And so this is the second, and we will see the third today as well in this passage. But it indicates that we're looking at warning of judgment that's coming. That's what that means. And the woe is directed here to who? To Ariel. Ariel, Ariel, it says. So what in the world does Ariel mean? Because that's not a word we commonly use, is it? Ariel is a word that means alter earth. And it was a flat surface that was used in, in making a sacrifice. They would burn the sacrifice on it. And so that's what an Ariel refers to. And so when they had their festivals, when they had their sacrifices, they would use these altar earths to sacrifice on. So who in the world is Ariel being referred to here? What is the reference being referred to? And the answer is clearly, beyond a doubt, it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem is being referred to by Ariel here. It's a code word, you might say, for Jerusalem. We see this uh, where David encamped and and then Mount Zion in verse 8. Just tell us that that's what it's referring to. So the next question is, why in the world would Ariel be used to refer to Jerusalem? What's the significance of that? And the answer is because Jerusalem was the location where the sacrifices were made. This is where God had prescribed for his people to worship him. All other worship, in a sense, you might say, is pagan, right? This is how, this is where, this is the way. This is where authentic, God-pleasing, God-honoring worship was made. This is where God accepted their worship. In Jerusalem, prided herself, didn't she? And comforted herself. Because she was God's altar earth. She was the place where the people would come to meet with God. She was the places where sacrifices were made. She was significant. She was special. She was the religious center of the world, you might say. And so she would think, well, I'm pretty safe. I'm pretty good. I'm doing okay. Right? But God doesn't think that much of her, does he? You can tell what God thinks of her worship by his expression. Listen to what he says. Add year to year, let the feasts run their, run their round. <laughs> See, the problem with Jerusalem was not a failure to practice the festivals, to sacrifice, to, to, to offer up the formal worship. That wasn't a failure of Jerusalem. They did it over and over again. In fact, God says, I'm sick of them. <laughs> I'm sick of them. Ad nausea, you know, you keep going over and over and over every year. But they're meaningless to me. It means nothing to God. You keep going to church week after week after week, but it means nothing to me. 
Whatever you're doing is not acceptable to me. So in verse 2, God turns the word around, the word for Ariel around, and uses it against them. Kind of a barb, right? He uses the word Ariel against Jerusalem. And he says, Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and he shall be to me like an Ariel. She shall be to me a sacrifice. She will burn up in judgment. She will be herself a sacrifice under my judgment. And she will lament and she will mourn. Strong words. God turns the word around against her. She won't merely make sacrifices, but she will become one. And God describes this judgment he's going to bring in verse 3. And he describes it as bringing, uh, as, as a siege, as God himself camping around Jerusalem and sieging the city, raising up ramparts, sieging her. And you say, well, God camping around, sieging her? <laughs> what do you mean? I thought it was Assyria. I thought it was the Babylonians. You know, God is perfectly fine with saying that he is going to siege them and what he means is he is going to send people to do it for him. He is going to send his instruments who are going to accomplish his means. And really, here's a principle here. That God is going to humble his people. That's the principle that we need to see here. And he's going to use other nations such as Assyria and Babylon to be his weed whackers. To cut them down to size. So what is the purpose of this siege? Well, we already said it's to humble God's people to the dust. It's to bring them down as low as you can go so that they're hardly even whispering. Do you see that here? They're laid almost like someone who captures someone else in verses 4. It's almost like someone who captures and they put them under their feet. And they can only barely whisper. They are brought to the dust by God. You see, God was laying siege to her pride. God was reminding her that they need God, that their wise plans that they came up with, remember they were turning to Egypt for help and God kept telling them, turn to me, look to me. God was reminding them their wisdom is not really all that wise. She thought she was good because of her privileges, because of her outward form of doing things the right way. And how often have we thought that we're okay because we're doing outwardly the right things? So he must ask, is such a painful thing really a good thing? Is there anything good in this? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes it is necessary for God to take out the scalpel, isn't it? Sometimes God needs to take away the cancer. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to humble us. And it's going to tear down our pride. And how often does God need to do that to our lives? God often hurts us to heal us. And this is a good and necessary sanctifying work of God. Praise God that he doesn't let us continue to run towards our idols. Praise God that he doesn't let us continue to think that we're okay with sin ruining our lives. Praise God that he brings us to our knees. And that's a reminder that you're his children, right? When God does do that to us. God disciplines those whom he loves. 
and chastises those he cares for. But if anyone is going to be saved, God must first lay siege to you. God must first bring you to the dust. God must first crush your pride and change your heart and bring you to your knees. And that is the only right position to be before God, is on our knees before the Almighty Creator. You cannot be saved until your pride is crushed by God. But believers grow as God laid siege to the remaining pride in our hearts, don't we? That's what God continually does throughout our lives. He, he, at one time and point in our lives, God brings us to our knees where we cry out to God, right? And then throughout our lives, it continually, continually lays siege to our pride and sanctifies us and changes us for our good and for His glory. The second work we see here is that God works to save us through overcoming all our enemies who stand against us by his own mighty power. And we see that in verses 5 through 8. What is the position of God's people at this time? They are barely alive. This is a really bad place to be in. They are hopeless. It is the last minute. And at this very moment, God steps in and easily overwhelms the enemy of his people and shows his fearsome power in gaining victory over the enemy of God's people. Notice the multitude that stands against God in verses 5 through 8. You can look at that yourself. But there is a, a, a very focused emphasis on this multitude that God overcomes. The, the words here are just build up on each other. Suddenly, instantly, God's judgment comes. Cosmic language, right? Thunder, earthquake, fearsome noise. This is God coming as our mighty victor to overcome our enemies. And they are beaten to small dust and become like passing chaff. This great insurmountable enemy that stood against God's people, that looked impossible to us like there was no hope. Where is God in this time? are instantaneously overwhelmed and overcome and conquered by God. And notice the illustration that's given here of what it's like for the enemy. Have any of you ever experienced this? Probably not. Have you ever gone to bed hungry and had a dream where you ate a feast and then you woke up and you're still hungry? Like I said, probably not. <laughs> but that's, that's the illustration we're given here. The enemies of God's people came hungry. They wanted to feast on Jerusalem. They wanted to conquer. They wanted the pride, the power, everything that came along with it, the plunder. And they came but left hungry without anything because God overpowered them. And this really is a similar picture of what happened to Israel or Jerusalem. Remember in 701 B.C., the Assyrians basically had defeated them. But at the last minute, God sends his angel who brings a plague and wipes out thousands and thousands of the Assyrians. And noticed that that is God coming in cosmic, thundering power, isn't it? Even though there wasn't really thunder. So we might ask a question, but didn't God bring these enemies into the lives of God's people? I mean, how is he now going to rightly judge them for doing what he, what, he, what, he, what he raised them up to do? And the answer is, they served God's purpose unwillingly. Their heart was not willingly serving God's purpose. 
God used them as his servants, and then he will judge them for their wicked hearts and their evil intentions. They were doing it out of pride and arrogance. So after they serve God's purpose, he will judge them. And this should encourage us. This should encourage us today, church. This should remind us of the power and the infinite greatness of our God. That there is no enemy that can stand against us if we are in Christ. That there is no power. Nothing. No matter what the world looks like around us, God does not have an equal out there. It's not one equal versus another equal. There is no one who can stand against God. There is no competition that can stand up against him. And all the enemies of God, whether it be Satan, the world, whether it be death, are really nothing. And are ultimately God's tools for serving his people in sanctifying us. They're, they're God's tools for our good. Isn't that crazy? That is awesome. All things are working together for good to those who love God. So be comforted, church, to know that God will defeat all that stands against you and will use all that stands against you for your good and for your salvation and for God's glory. Third, there are different various ways that pride is manifested in our lives. And verses 9 through 16 gives us various ways that pride was manifested in the lives of those in Jerusalem, of God's people. And this is the pride that God must lay siege to and overcome in our lives. And so first of all, God overcomes our refusal to submit to his word, which otherwise you might say rebellion, right? Rebellion is refusal to submit to God's word. And we see that in verses 9 through 12. God has blessed his people out of all the world, hasn't he? He chose to speak to them. That is an incredible thought. And just think about that for a second, that God has spoken to his people. And God has spoken to us, hasn't he? We have his word. What a privilege. They had the prophets. They had the word of God spoken to them. The rest of the world didn't. And astonishingly, they refused to listen, didn't they? Now, it shouldn't be surprising to us in the sense that this is the natural uh, tendency of man because of our wicked, rebellious heart. Remember, we don't cooperate with God. So this isn't surprising but it should astonish us at the same time. Kind of a weird thought, isn't it? It should astonish us because of the greatness of what it means to have God's word. Astonished by the rebellious nature of man's heart. Astonished by your own heart. They have refused to turn to God for salvation. And all of this is the essence of pride. Now people might tell you pride is this and pride is that. But the essence of pride is this. This is the very definition, the very bottom line of what pride is. The very bottom line pride, essence of pride, is failure to listen to God's word. Failure to submit to God is the essence of pride. That's what pride is. Failure to bow to God in his word. So God sarcastically tells them, keep doing what you're doing. Keep going where you're going. Keep being drunk. Keep being blind. If you're going to be blind, keep going in that direction. In fact, God says, I am going to judge you by making, by taking my word away from you. I'm going to harden you even more. He says he's going to close the eyes of the prophets and cover their heads. 
Now these are the people who are supposed to communicate the word of God to them. And God says, you will be blind and not be able to hear from me. And the result is that all is cut off. No one will be able to hear from from God and his word. No one will be able to understand it. No one will make sense of it. It won't make any sense to you. And that is God's judgment, isn't it? God often brings judgment by giving to us the sin we have chosen. In reality, if God were to let go and let us go in the direction of our sin, we would destroy ourselves, right? And so God often gives us what we ask for, and that is God's judgment. And is there anything worse than God taking his word away from us? Like a sealed book, the prophets say, I can't, I can't go there, I can't understand it. And the rest of the people, well, they can't read, right? They can't understand. They needed the prophets. They can no longer see. So God said, you will not be able to see at all. Now, one man said this, the people will be like an airliner in thick fog when they need to see, with dead radios when they need to hear. And the end is that they are doomed. We are doomed without God's word. There is no hope unless God speaks to us. Is there anything worse than this? Amos 8 verse 11 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Is this not similar to the churches sometimes today, where where the preaching is not the word of God? Where people go up and they say a lot of nice things, but they don't preach the word of God? God's judgment is the very thing that they are being, that, that's being given, <laughs> that's being preached. The people have no hope and are lost. And we see that throughout, the, throughout America today. Is God's judgment is already upon us because of the failure to preach God's word. God also overcomes our mere external, superficial, heartless, formal worship, doesn't he? We see that in verses 13 through 14. They were busy doing a lot of external, formal worship, weren't they? They must have been the busiest people in the world, right? They were doing all kinds of outward practices, saying the right words, drawing near to God with their words and with their actions, saying the right things. They look so spiritual. If we were to look at them, we'd say, these people have it. These are the spiritual people of the day. And for this reason, they felt very comfortable. They thought they were doing pretty good. But the problem is that their hearts were far from God, wasn't it? That's the problem. You can say this, that they, in a sense, were practicing dead orthodoxy. And that is possible to do, isn't it? It's possible to have all the right words, to know all the right things to say, but be dead and have no life in us. You know, orthodoxy, the right doctrine, is intended to always lead us to doxology. It should always lead us to worship and praise. Otherwise, it is not accomplishing the goal that it is intended to do, and we're failing to miss the point. If our understanding of God, if our understanding of God's word doesn't lead us to praise God, then we're missing all of it. We're missing the heart of it. We're not getting it at all. And this is not saying that form doesn't matter. So don't think that what he's saying is you have to choose the one or the other. They are both important, aren't they? But the form means nothing if the heart is not there. That's the point. 
the one should lead to the other. And such hypocritical, mere external worship is the grounds for judgment from God. What does God think about this? Is God somewhat pleased if we come to church and do the outward forms but have no heart or no interest in what we're doing? Is God somewhat pleased with that? At least it's better than not coming, right? But the reality is, if there is no heart, if we're not believers, if we're not seeing Christ as our greatest treasure, then all it is doing is hardening our hearts and bringing more and more judgment of God upon our lives. The more we refuse God's word, the more hardened we become. And so God says some strange words of judgment here in verse 14. He says in response that he is going to do wonderful things with his people. And those wonderful things, the words of wonderful things, refer us back to deliverance from Egypt, to crossing the Red Sea. They refer us back to the great and wonderful things God does. But it also connects us to the last chapter. Remember we said God is going to do some strange things? Well, God is going to confound their wisdom. God's great work, you know, the foolishness, the message of the cross is foolishness to the world, right? God is going to destroy their wisdom and bring it to nothing. And so this wonderful things will not be as pleasant for God's people. God also overcomes our exaggerated view of ourselves and small view of God. We see that in verses 15 through 16. See, somehow they're making this political pact amongst themselves. And we don't know all the details that are going on. Perhaps, perhaps uh, King Hezekiah was in on it. We don't know. But you can imagine these people going into their dark room and thinking, we are going to hide from God our plans. God told us not to turn to the Egyptians for deliverance. Right? And he said that to them clearly through the prophets, over and over again. But we are going to look to the Egyptians and we're going to do it in such a way that God won't see us. We're going to do it in secret. Is there anything more foolish than that? Trying to hide from God is the same as saying that God is on our level. God is no different than us. And that's what makes it so incredibly awful (laughs) to think that we can put God on our same level, that God is anything like us, is a great cosmic reversal. (laughs) It gets everything backwards. To turn things around. Psalm 50, verse 21, God says this in astonishment. And you thought that I was just like you. And the foolishness is brought out in an image of a, of a pot in the potter, right? The clay in the potter. And it's as if the, the clay says, you didn't make me. I mean, that's just foolishness, right? Or I know more than the potter. I know better than him. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. When God told them what to do, they did their own thing. And I'm sure they had great justification for it. I'm sure they had many reasons for why they were doing what they were doing. But such foolish thinking reveals that we have forgotten the fundamental reality that we are the created and God is the creator. And how fundamental is that? Genesis 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The most fundamental thought is that God is our creator. 
And this is the reason that the world is so angry at that. This is the reason that the world is so in rebellion against that. Because it forces us to come to grips that God can do whatever he wants with us. God is the one who has the rights. If God is the creator, then he can do whatever he wants with his created. And we have no right to speak up against him. We can't say, why did you make me like that? We have no right. He has the right to do whatever he wants with us. And we have the only right to bow to him and submit to him. And that's why evolution is so popular. That's why this idea that God wound up the world and just let it go is so popular. Because anything to distance ourselves from God and not be responsible to the almighty God frees us from being responsible to bow to him. And we can't live in a false world, can we? If we say God is our creator and really believe it, then we are responsible to him and better obey him. The answer really is to do what we are doing right now and right here. We need to keep magnifying Christ. Preach the truth of our bankruptcy. Preach the truth that we have nothing to add to our salvation. Show that we are helpless and lost. Pound that into our hearts and our minds because many of us would claim it's true but don't really believe it. And we need to constantly be reminded of it and magnify Christ as the all, the all, the all-pleasing pleasure, the all-sufficient pleasure, the, the most glorious treasure in the universe and the only one who can save us. And that's what we are to do with each other all the time. Elevate Christ, magnify Christ, because that's what we need more than anything in our lives. Finally, a great day of transformation is coming. A glorious day when God will finally and completely work to save his people and consummate the work he has already accomplished and we will see the fullness of the glorious transformation. And that day there will be a complete reversal of positions, the proud will be humbled and the humbled exalted. Meaning the, the humble in hearts will be exalted. The pride who live their lives in arrogance against God will be humbled and crashed to the ground. We see this in this great forest of Lebanon becoming a field, an empty field. We see the, the empty field, the humble, being exalted to a forest, right? That day is coming. And that day... There will be a spiritual perception. The blind will see. The deaf will hear. And they will see what? A book. They will see a book. They will see God. This isn't physical blindness we're talking about here. This is spiritual. This is spiritual sight. A miracle of God that we need in order to be saved. And that day there will be proper affections. Oh, and isn't this the true reality? We're seeing it worked out before us. That when God humbles us, when God lays us to the ground, when God saves us and brings us to the true reality of who he is, all of a sudden our affections are redirected in the right way. All of a sudden we exalt and praise God. We have newness of joy because God is the fullness of joy. We shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind, the poor in spirit, shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Praise God. Praise God that we can see today. Praise God that we can see and our affections are being aligned to this glorious God. We are not right until our affections are in line with God and his greatness and his glory. 
and we can't praise him accurately. And that's why we pray, ask God, Lord, align my heart to sing your praises. It's our good and his glory that our affections are rightly aligned. And that day all who offend will be cast out. Notice that, verses 20 through 21. All offenders, all rebellious, all who are against God will be cast out. And this isn't saying that they will be ending. What this is saying is that they will be cast out. That's what it's saying. And we know that they will suffer eternal punishment under the wrath of God for eternity. And finally, in that day, God's promise to his seed of Abraham will be fulfilled. In verses 22 through 24. There'll be no shame, will there? Because God will be seen to be faithful to his people when they see the the children of Abraham, those who are connected to Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, as they see God's people and God's promises being fulfilled, they will rejoice. And they will see that there is no shame at all. God has not rejected or abandoned his people. There is no guilt to be found in them. And there will be much fruit. The evidence of being saved will be the setting apart, sanctifying of the name of God as holy. This will be true of God's people that will set apart and sanctify God's name as holy. They will say God is separate, God is exalted, God is magnificent. And that's how we see God at work in the lives of people around us, don't we? We say God is the other, God is the glorious, God is the one we rejoice in. And that's the evidence of the kingdom of God that he has come to us. The kingdom of God belongs to us. My son was recently bothered by how much God's name was used by other children around him at a recent event he went to. And I say, praise God for that. He should be bothered. You know, it's unimaginable. I mean, there are many ways we can use God's name in vain. But it's unimaginable that we would ever, who have any inkling to the greatness of our God, would ever use God's name in any way, but that is appropriate. It is inconceivable, but in that day we will hollow and honor and extol our great and mighty God. Accurately and perfectly. We will stand in complete awe of God. So let's conclude here. You and I have nothing to bring to the table for salvation except great need. And even that, we are rebellious against God. We need God to change our hearts. Even so that we will want him and desire him. There is only one who is greater, more powerful, and sufficient to save us. And that is the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. Look to him for salvation and look nowhere else. Christ alone is able to save. There is salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. And don't allow yourself in a moment of sleep until you are safe in Christ. And the Bible uses in Christ over and over again. There is only one safety place. There is only one rock of salvation, and that is Christ. Run to him, because otherwise you're in mortal, eternal danger. And the process of God saving us and changing us into his image will be brought with great pain at times. Because God is going to lay siege to our pride. God is going to bring us low over and over again. And praise be to God for that. Ask God, ask the great physician, Lord, lay my pride to the dust. Lord, lay siege to my life. 
If you're not a believer, cry out to God, Lord, open my eyes. Bring my pride to the dust. And believers, pray that God would do that to you. And that's kind of hard to pray for, isn't it? (laughs) Ask God to conquer those areas of your life that you think are impossible to overcome. Remember, God is the one who saves. And don't give up. Keep asking. Keep praying. And know this, that one glorious day is coming when God will transform and deliver you who are his people from all the effects of sin and from all that opposes and from all enemies. And the outcome will be complete reversal of the present situation. What a glorious day that will be. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, God, you have been so good to us. Lord, you have been beyond good. Lord, you have opened up our eyes. You have opened up our ears, Lord. We were bound to judgment as we so rightly deserved. You would have every right to condemn us to hell for eternity. To face your just wrath. That's what I deserved. But Lord, in your immeasurable grace and your mercy, you reached down. Lord, by the power of your spirit, you opened up these these eyes that were blind. You opened up these ears that could not hear. And you showed the light of the gospel shined in our hearts. The word that created the world created faith and opened us to the reality that there is salvation in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And, Lord, I pray that you would constantly remind us of that. Lord, whatever it takes, bring us to our knees before you so that we will constantly be there in our humble position before the Almighty God. Lord, that is where we want to be. That is where we need to be. We love thinking of ourselves as nothing, as having nothing to bring, because that is where we need to be. That is where we love to be. That is where our joy is found. And so I pray, Lord, that you would keep us in that place. And Lord, if there is any who are not saved today, I pray they do a mighty work, a mighty saving work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.